I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. As part of our commemoration for Africa Day, which is celebrated on the 25th of May, Joining us on the line today from Pretoria in South Africa is Dr. Haida Hackman, who is the Interim Director and Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the Future Africa Institute. Prior to this role, Dr. Hackman served as CEO of the International Science Council based in France and represented the Council on International Committees, Steering or Executive Groups of numerous global science and policy initiatives, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Amalea. It's a real honor to be a guest on your show. Before we talk about your current role, let's briefly discuss Future Africa at the University of Pretoria, which was only launched in 2019 and obviously had to grapple with the constraints of going into this world of COVID, which I'm sure must have dented the launch plans But it is described as a research institute and a pan-African platform that makes possible fundamentally new approaches to research and innovation which span disciplinary fields as well as geopolitical boundaries. Countries and continents are working on wicked problems to solve common challenges which include climate change, food security, poverty, human rights, health and well-being, and biodiversity loss. So please, can you tell us more about Future Africa? Sure. So as you say, Future Africa was launched in 2019, but you can imagine that, you know, it took a number of years for this idea to be conceived, to be realized and implemented. Future Africa has a wonderful infrastructure. It has a campus with accommodation and a research commons building. So the planning of both the physical infrastructure, but also the intellectual idea and the vision behind it took a number of years. And I think it's fair to say that that idea arose at a time when universities really started thinking more critically about how do we use science and technology to address some of the biggest and most urgent societal challenges that we face both in Africa but globally. And there is relevance for all the sciences. And I think the recognition at the time in the science system was that we need to scale up on collaboration that none of those problems that you've referred to, from climate change to health and well-being um, to gender equality, none of those problems can be addressed by one discipline, one institution, one country. And so at the heart of Future Africa is this idea of meaningful collaboration across the continent that is problem-oriented. And also collaboration, not only across those geopolitical boundaries, but collaboration between science and society. And that will take us into the discussion about what is, you know, what is this unique research approach that Future Africa fosters and promotes? Please go ahead. Um, So 
in my thinking and in our sort of narrative about what future Africa is and what kind of research it wants to promote, we talk about transformative research. And that is research that can inform and inspire the necessary social transformations towards global sustainability. So the question then is, what makes research and scholarship, right? When I talk about research, it's a research and scholarship. And when I talk about science, I mean all the sciences, including them, the natural, the social, human, engineering, technological sciences. So what is it that makes research and scholarship transformative? And there's several, several elements. First of all, collaboration between those disciplines. They all have something to contribute. Um, and in fact, I think it's fair to say that today there's recognition that the big problems, the, the urgent global challenges like climate change, you know, the, the, the social and human sciences, which in the past may always have been seen as add-ons, um, to help, you know, communicate the knowledge and the wisdom of the natural sciences, today are seen as essential, necessary contributors of knowledge to solve those problems. So interdisciplinarity, collaboration across the faculties, across the spectrum of sciences, is the first thing that's critical to transformative research. Then the collaboration with society, engagement with societal actors, understanding that science is one form of knowledge, that there are other valid knowledge systems that we have to work with. And this means working with communities, with activists, with policymakers, with leaders and decision makers from industry, from civil society and from the media. And it's actually engaging them in the knowledge production process building networks of mutual learning and problem solving with them. That's what we call societally engaged or transdisciplinary. It's going beyond academia to involve society. But there are other elements in order to be transformative around these wicked problems. We need to be skilled in taking a systems approach. We need to understand systems thinking. So we need to embed problems in the broader systems in which they emerge. We also need to be literate about futures. You know, our anticipation of the kinds of futures we want needs to be enhanced. And I think today it's very relevant to say that our research needs to be digitally enabled. The tools of the digital revolution have the capacity to fuel scientific discovery in ways that are unprecedented. We need to ensure that our researchers are at the forefront of those developments and are able to use those tools for the benefit of science that solves problems. So transformative research really combines all these elements in order to contribute solutions to societal problems. It sounds like such an exciting place to be looking at the diversity that's involved, the transdisciplinary process, the transformative approach to research, the co-creativity and really bringing together, let, let's say it, the best minds in the continent to help try to solve problems that society faces. On that note, and I know that you are, as a new institution, 
what are the types of projects and plans, if you can share with us, that you're planning to address? Let me give you some examples. We have chosen the topic of One Health, the concept of health that brings together the health of people, places, of the natural world, of the environment, of animals, and understanding how we train new practitioners in the public health system, how we foster and create awareness around the benefits of a One Health approach, which is the systemic approach I've been talking about, and ensure that this is picked up in our policy making and in our practice. So that would be one example of a broad area of work that we have prioritized as a priority for Africa. Another one is sustainable food systems. And again, this traverses a number of disciplines, faculties, um, and, and domains of work. Food security in Africa and globally, there is a big challenge for us. And we have a research chair leading that program of work. These research chairs are leading specific research projects, but more than that, they are convening expertise and networks, multi-stakeholder networks across the continent, so that we are creating the knowledge trusts that Africa needs. These you know, knowledge trusts that draw on the expertise from science to society. Obviously, the discussions about what are the other big issues that we need to address as a matter of urgency is a very complex discussion. But let me give you some examples. The issue of gender equality is high on our list of priorities. The issue of youth, education, employment and empowerment, without getting that right, the future of Africa is you know, at risk. So that's another high priority. Clearly, there are broader areas around climate change as a global existential threat to humanity that we need to tackle. And I think one of the directions we're looking at is understanding issues of risk assessment and attribution. Social justice and, and broader social equality, another big theme. And these are all areas and streams of work that we are now starting to develop. Those are incredible topics which face absolutely everybody. I don't think a single person is untouched youth employment, youth education, given that our continent is possibly has the highest percentage of youth in the entire world, and they are our future. And if we don't start right. investing into them, we are not going to have a future. Correct. One of the things that Future Africa, one of its objectives is not just to, to lead actual research projects and create the research networks required, but we have as our primary focus and one of our distinctive, I think, characteristics is that we believe in the potential of young people to change as agents of change, both in science and society. So a major area of work for us is to build the research capacity and the leadership capacity of the next generation of researchers and scholars who will be able to take this transformative approach further. 
I wanted to ask you, when we were talking earlier, you spoke about digital as being one of the, the, the core components of the future and thinking about the work that you're doing. That is an essential collaborative tool. But technology demands new skills to function and to participate in the digital economy. And we often talk about the fourth industrial revolution. It's really transformed the 21st century's working world, and it has opened up new career possibilities. And I emphasize women because naturally, in terms of our, our show's dynamics, we focus on gender equality. How can we ensure that women don't get left behind in this tech economic revolution? It's a very important question, and it makes me think that we, we should celebrate the fact that the university has just launched a center for the future of work. And Future Africa certainly will be reaching out to the leadership of that new center because as we take forward programs in gender equality, we need to work with you know, others in, on the campus like this new Center for the Future of Work to address the kind of issue you're opposing. You're right in saying there's a spectrum of new skills that need to be developed. There's a whole spectrum of infrastructure that we need to secure on the continent. And I think that in terms of understanding how we ensure that women don't get left behind, there's work to do in understanding what the obstacles are in their day-to-day -day realities. What are the obstacles to women becoming involved from a very young age, from education to the current market in this new domain? What are the incentives what are the mind shifts that are required? That's work to be done by academics to provide us with that understanding. And then it's a case of policy and practice and learning from what works and doesn't work. But it is a critical issue um, and it needs to be mainstreamed throughout our work, not only in terms of, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, the digital economy, but all areas of work, really. Digital is transforming everything. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Dr. Haida Hackman, the Interim Director and Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the Future Africa Institute. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Hackman, reflecting on your career, which has taken you from South Africa to Germany, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, and France, what were some of the most important milestones for you? And how would you say that education has factored into these achievements? I think perhaps it's useful to say that when I first got the opportunity provided by my parents to go to university, it came with a condition that if we didn't pass the first year or messed up in some way, that we were on our own. And indeed, I went to the University of Cape Town. I was distracted and I did not do very well in my first year. And my parents sent me out into the big world to make my own way. And I ended up in a typing pool as a typist. 
at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. That experience, working in a typing pool for eight months, made me realize the value of having to get my act together and going back to university, having to find my own way, work to support myself. So that was a milestone for me. And, you know, it's something that I'm proud of my parents and grateful to my parents for. To cut a long story short, two milestones that really connect and are almost red threads through my career. I did go back to university. I got a scholarship to study overseas. I came back to South Africa. And my very first serious job was with the Human Sciences Research Council. And I was asked to help coordinate and lead the establishment of a national research program on global change and social transformation. This was back in 1994, working with UNESCO, actually. And we did that. We set up that program. And that, for me, was formative in the sense of opening my eyes to the need for social transformations in the light of rapid global change. And, you know, that is a thread that has stayed throughout my career. It also opened me to the world of science policymaking, to set up a program, to manage a national initiative, to bring together scientists from all sorts of disciplines to plan and conceive of such an initiative. You know, the idea of science's role in society, the purpose of the program was to address some of these global change challenges. So the sort of dimensions of my career from science policy to concerns around sustainability of our planet came to me in that, in that first position. The second milestone in 2018 was the launch of the International Science Council and my role in that. The council brought together two big international councils, one for the natural sciences called ICSU, the International Council for Science, and the International Social Science Council. These international bodies had existed separately um, since 1931 in the case of the natural sciences and 1952 in the social sciences. And I had the privilege of being the executive director, first of the Social Science Council, and then of the Natural Science Council. And what drove me, and the ambition was always to bring these two together in order to effectively address global challenges and the needs for social transformation. That was my biggest milestone and my biggest achievement. Education, my qualifications, critical, fundamental. I don't think working in that world of international science that you have credibility without having had the PhD, having paid your dues to the academic uh, system. So education was critical to that. Thinking about the landmarks that you've just shared with us, everything has built upon itself and it has all had a meaningful impact on the world. You're really doing purposeful, driven world that taps into aspects of sustainability, integrated knowledge to go towards solving these wicked problems that we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation. And I think all of those factors have really set you up for running Future Africa to address the continent's issues. 
In your role at Future Africa, can you tell us about some of the programs which potentially have more relevance to women? So one of our core values at Future Africa is inclusivity and diversity. So really making sure that we harness the rich diversity of experience, of perspectives, of scientific method, and of knowledge and wisdom. And ensuring the equality and the the equal participation of women, opportunities for young early career women in these activities is mainstream throughout what we do. At the same time, we are now talking about establishing a stream of work with a research chair attached to it around women's leadership in Africa. That needs to be planned carefully because we also need to ask leadership for what. Future Africa is about solving continental and global problems. And so my vision and dream would be that we build leadership of women to contribute positively to global sustainability in whatever sector they are working. I hope in the next year we can move fast in terms of raising the resources required because it is about aggressive resource mobilization to support something that will have impact. You know, we do have really generous funders. We have run several postdoctoral fellowship schemes, but we need to scale up and we need to do so aggressively. You know, international donors are interested in Africa. Everybody wants to tick the Africa box and say that they've contributed, but we need to scale up and really accelerate the impact of those efforts. Before we go into a conversation about leadership, which is incredibly important, especially if we're looking at how women can start taking a a more active role, a few things that have always struck me in conversations that we've had with women in all sectors of society And it also dovetails with some of the work that you've been talking about today is that apart from having your professional course of action or your career trajectory in place, that the reality is that women have to also contend with social and cultural constraints, whether it is about motherhood or looking after ailing parents. These are burdens that women bear the brunt of. And another factor that has come out in conversations from an academic point of view is that often there will be scholarships or bursaries that are available, but there's an age cutoff or criteria. It's interesting that you raise that because when I did go back and after the typing pool to do my undergraduate work at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, I was at the end of that, I was given a scholarship to study overseas. And then the scholarship committee realized that I was too old because I was a mature student. But we we fought that on the basis of this is discriminatory against women. And I'm happy to say that I did get the scholarship and that the rules were changed. So this is a fundamental issue. And just the other day, we were talking internally at Future Africa about how do we define early career researchers? And we agreed there should be no age restriction to that. It's about where you're at in your career. 
And this is partially to cater for the kinds of obstacles and realities that you are referring to when it comes to women. But it also makes me think that in terms of, you know, what are the, the really key drivers or factors of success to have a successful career and to become a leader in a sector, in my case, in science, you know, for me, it was about passion, being passionate about science and, and its ability to um, have positive impact on the world. It's about courage. But as a woman, I think what was critical for me was the strong support networks from family and friends. Networks that allowed me to make choices that did not necessarily fit the pattern. I didn't get married. I did not have children, et cetera, et cetera. Those choices that you make as a woman that can affect how you fit into your society, and we all have this overwhelming need to belong, right? Without the support, unconditional support of family and friends, those would have been difficult choices, lonely choices. And so I think, you know, that connectedness and having sounding boards advisors who can refuel your energy when you're making those difficult decisions is critical for women. And that's the issue of not having to conform to stereotypes, but making your own choices and having the freedom to do that. Correct. For women, those choices start when we go to school. If I think about how are we going to encourage more women to enter into science and technology or to see the leadership career opportunities that there are, it starts at school. It's about education and it's about training the teachers to foster that kind of awareness and hunger and confidence to say, I too can pursue a career in science and technology. Whilst we're talking about leadership, and you've mentioned aspects of some of your drivers of being passion, being able to make a positive difference and having a really strong support network. Can you tell us, as a female leader, what are some of the leadership strategies that you've found to be most effective? It's a very interesting question. And I think that It's dependent very much on the sector that you're working on. Leadership strategies will invariably change. But for me, given my work in international science, where collaboration and having to convene across geopolitical boundaries, across scientific disciplines, bringing people together, that was my field of work, really science diplomacy. And in that regard, I think for me, the key elements of the strategies are on the one hand, to be inspirational. That means think big, ask why not, what if, you know, go all out, go for the big vision. So to be visionary, to understand what may be possible and to inspire teams, to inspire people, to share that level of ambition. I think for me, that is key. But then it goes hand in hand with being an effective enabler. Enabling for me involves the ability to be open-minded, to listen to everyone, but not to be scared to make decisions. So to be an effective decision maker. Because actually you enable people by giving clear direction, clear decisions. It also means not being threatened by new talent. 
It's creating opportunities, creating safe spaces for younger people who share your vision, who are inspired, creating the safety networks for them to gain experience, to make mistakes, to have their backs. So to be an effective enabler is actually comes with a dimension of skills and attitudes that I think are required to meet the ambition that you've set and, and to allow people who are inspired to reach those ambitions. I would say a third thing for me is to remain authentic, to not pretend to know everything, to not speak on things that you are not familiar with. And so just authenticity and connecting with people at a very human level. Again, it's about deep, meaningful collaboration. And so a sort of a collaborative style of leadership is what in my case, I think, if I look back, and this is not something you reflect on on a day-to-day -day basis, you kind of muddle through the job. But if you think back, it's those elements of inspiration, enabling, remain authentic, connect at a human level. Thanks for sharing your points. I often find in these conversations, everybody brings a, a different mix of what works for them. And conceivably, this is also about the different disciplines that people are in, involved in. Oh, and I should add, lead by example. Don't be afraid to roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty. You know, it's teamwork. You've made it. You've done this by muddling through the process yourself through trial and error. What do you think we can do to help build this capability for more women so that they don't have to muddle through and they can follow a trajectory and make it? I think in addition to, you know, clearly policies at all levels, from government levels to institutional levels, and advocacy around policies is obviously central. And a lot of that is happening. But I think in addition to that, it is about role models. It is about creating communities of practice, of alliances, building the critical mass. You know, if I think back of the early days of my career in a leadership position, I would have appreciated being connected to other women in leadership positions in my field. And so I think those alliances, communities of support, of inspiration, of enabling are very important. There are more and more women who want to get engaged in giving back. And I think that's important. In addition, back to the point of it's when young girls at school make choices, their teachers are critical role models and influences at that formative stage. So there's something there around education, education, education. That's a program of work. You know, it links the gender equality work we want to do with the youth empowerment education um, work we want to do. So it's about mainstreaming the awareness of gender inequalities throughout our work, throughout every sector of work. Mm. The choices you make when you're, what, 15, 16, have an impact on the rest of your life. They do. They do. You mentioned teachers as being important role models. Could you tell us about some of the women who have been role models or influences in your life? 
so it's maybe a very obvious thing to say, but my mother. And it's simply about having observed how she navigated adversity in life. Very, very strong woman. In addition, I would say peers, my friends, my colleagues, it is about observing and understanding how they manage daily realities, daily obstacles, how they create incentives for themselves, for others, how they heal and nurture others in order to heal and nurture themselves. So just remarkable, ordinary women that I've had the privilege of working with. And I do really make a point of understanding their journeys and learning from their journeys. That brings in this dimension of reality and authenticity. One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. What have been some of your key drivers for success? I would go back to what I've already said. So at a personal level, it's my passion. Where that comes from, goodness knows, but it's passion. It's a degree of courage. It's that notion of hunger for learning. Again, underlying, the, I think, the, the support networks, the wisdom of mentors, male and female, those have created the framework within which my passion, my courage, my hunger for learning have been nurtured and have been by others. It's, again, the importance of our interconnectedness with others and how if we, by contributing to their journeys, we are advancing our own journeys. Again, what we've talked about before, the, the co-creative component, the, the collaboration. So all of those uh, ingredients have been part of your lived DNA. Correct. So here you are today. You've talked us through some of your career milestones and the focal point of the work that you do. But can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments of your life growing up? Yes, for me, the pivotal ones are difficult ones. And I would perhaps mention two. The one is at an early age of teenager years of a split in the family, divorce of, of a very secure, you know, so all that family support, those close networks, suddenly there is a fracture. And I think that's pivotal in the sense, and again, kudos to how my parents dealt with that. That was pivotal in terms of learning the complexity but the value of human relations and how to adapt to new circumstances and how one deals with such difficult moments with integrity. So learning from how my parents managed that difficult moment in their lives to continue to provide that support network for their children. Really, really fundamental learning there, transformative at an early age. And the other one was also a difficult one where in my early 20s, I was involved in a terrible car accident with devastating consequences for those involved. And that moment, that instant of the accident, and it is a split second where things go wrong, you realize how uncertain the future is and that we cannot live in the future. We have to live for today. 
the uncertainty, the way in which life can change forever, fundamentally, in a split second, was such a pivotal moment for me in terms of saying, the why not and what if, I'm going to do it today. So I try again, you know, often without success. But for me, every day is a new day. Every day I throw myself into the cause, into the passion, and just do as much as I can do. Those were very transformative experiences. And I can imagine they must have been incredibly painful, but you have used them for a positive effect, which is an amazing learning to be able to do that. It's about realizing, and I think this is an important lesson, it is about realizing that we have to create meaning in our lives. So in that moment of, you know, suddenly you in this accident, life changes, you realize you have to start from scratch. But it also means we have the ability to recreate meaning, to find new meaning, and to pursue it on a daily basis. That's very, very positive. And as we lead out with that view of, of positivity and, and transformation, in honor of Africa Day, please, can you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent that are listening to us? I've just been reading a marvelous book by a friend and colleague called Karen O'Brien. And the title of the book is, I think, The Message. And that is, you matter more than you think. I really highly recommend it. But I think, you know, we talk about this being Africa's century. That's a high level ambition. But the reality is making it Africa's century and the world needs Africa. It needs the knowledge and the wisdom and the creativity of Africa. But to make that a reality means that all of us matter, all of us in Africa. And women matter more than they think. Thank you for that wonderful message. We couldn't agree with you more. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And happy Africa Day. Yes, happy Africa Day. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Haida Hackman, who is the Interim Director and Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the Future Africa Institute.